Hey folks, so Ken and I just barely touched the surface with all things Apocalypse Now, so we decided to divide it up into two episodes, and thanks to his knowledge and in-depth research prior to the recording, it really turned out great. He also reread Heart of Darkness recently, and this certainly added to the final product. So we are new to this, and we just want to grow and learn, and the only way we can do that is with your feedback. We want to stay unique, but we also want to stay informed with podcast etiquette as more podcasters and listeners out there add to the community. So part two of Apocalypse Now Final Cut is in the can and uh, now here for your ear holes. And away we go. continue on Ken. you know i'm just it's so insightful and it's so fresh in my memory and I'm, I'm trying to sort of transport myself a little bit to when i first saw it on vhs in 1992 well, i'll just say the first time i saw it period um as the listeners who listened to our first episode know i worked at three video stores and uh i got a free movie for every shift cool i saved a buck 50 ken can you believe it <laughs> that's three del tacos i mean come on <laughs> we were talking about shell shock and the how convincing it was and how representative it was of the tone of the movie I, yes if you see the insanity uh you listen to this recording at the beginning they play this recording to martin sheen when they're trying to convince him to take the mission and it's really just a tortured man, tortured by war. And the army wants to assassinate him for going crazy. How ironic is that? Very, very. The general says he was a humanitarian man. And out there with these natives, it must be a temptation to be a god. And this is what Conrad is saying as well, that he talks about, you know, being human. In the novel... Um, Going up the Congo is a metaphor for going back in time. Mm. The farther up river they go, uh, the more back in time they go, the more back to savage human tribes and behavior he starts, he starts to witness. They're regressing, very significant. And it, it, they, they, they reference this in the movie where Shane says, weeks away and hundreds of miles up a river that snaked through the war like a main cir circuit cable plugged straight into Kurtz. So here's the analogy of the snake or the cable. Just regression in the heart and mind. Well, yeah, not so much a regression. What they're saying is this, na this human nature is still there. To, yes, to regress to our more base primal instinct. It's still there. We're not, we're not evolved past that. And I like how you brought up uh, Full Metal Jacket because you know, that, that's a beloved movie. As a, as a war film specifically, I think of Apocalypse now as the quintessential war film, not so much Full Metal Jacket, because there's something else going on there where it's more on the conventional lines of being a, I hate to use the word standard, but relatively standard war film. 
in a full metal jacket. Right. It's a, I, f- I consider that a war movie. Consider that Kubrick's attempt to make a war movie. And he had made a couple Paths of Glory, uh, Dr. Strange Love. Oh, he definitely had the chops to do it. But there were just some moments in that movie that took me away from that, unlike Apocalypse Now. For example, when the documentarians in Full Metal Jacket is asking the soldiers who are neatly lined up, they're asking him questions, and they have these perfectly rehearsed answers. It just didn't ring true to me. Did you notice how how Matthew Modine is is framed uh, in front of a movie theater where where the Red River is is shown on a poster? John the John John Wayne. You know what I noticed? I forgot that I noticed that. Now that you mentioned it, <laughs> I forgot that I noticed it recently, and I forgot to bring it up. By the way, we need to get ahead of the trolls and that are going to comment. First comment will be what snooty and pretentious. So. I move that we rename the podcast to this snooty and pretentious podcast <laughs> and I shall be snooty and you shall be pretentious. Or did you want to be snooty? It, it kind of has like this, this <laughs> indomitable barrier that nobody they, that, that is, is immune to criticism because we already have the title of snooty and pretentious. No, I, I, I hear you. You know, I, and I brought this up to Ken folks a couple of weeks ago when I was reading some podcast reviews of other podcasters, movie podcasters. And it was unfair to use that kind of terminology because what is snooty and pretentious? I mean, if when you use those words, that most likely you are yourself snooty and pretentious. <laughs> you, you, in order to recognize that, you must be. You, you transcend the content that you're speaking of, or you know, I don't get it. I love the Family Guy the discussion where they're. I think they're like in a in a building that's flooding. And they're having a discussion about The Godfather and how Peter doesn't like it. <laughs> and how can you not like it? A classic American cinema. One of the best movies ever made. He says, I don't like it. It insists upon itself. What does that even mean? Oh, my it gosh. It insists upon itself. You bring what? that up. I, now I remember. <laughs> it, I've heard that line like maybe twice in my life. It insists upon itself. Oh, and then it is too self-congratulatory. <laughs> what? Have you heard that? <laughs> How do you pat, how does a movie pack it, pat itself on the back? Self congratulatory. <laughs> Gosh, I hate this movie because it's popular. Sure, uh, I got to admit, okay, Ken, and we're we're kind of taking a leisurely kind of stroll before we continue on with Apocalypse now. But I got I got to admit, when The Matrix came out in 1998, I was a bit snooty and pretentious about big budget movies. I will say that I will admit that I was in this kind of boycott. That is why it's one of my, it's my guilty pleasure movie. Well, I was in this boycott frame of mind. Like, oh, you know, sure. look at it. It's it's super, it's super mainstream. And CGI. Big budget and, and yeah. you know, it's got some cool martial arts and, you know, but I, I stopped. My later 20s, I'm like, no, come on. Go watch Rob Ager, his his YouTube channel, because he goes back and he's such, he's such a fine analyst of movies. But he goes back and says, The Predator, The Matrix, Indiana Jones, mm. all these movies, which kind of got, all, you know, maybe overlooked due to big budget Hollywood. But he says, he's look at all these themes and he's die hard. You know, go, go watch him. He's, I, I don't, I don't want to watch his material and then feel like I'm copying it, which is maybe why he made analysis. And I, I tried not to, to, to say things, but if I do mention something, I, an idea I got from him, I'm going to, I'm going to quote him as the source. Got it. And I look forward to that. So I got to, I want to take sort of a mid session, little fun, have a little fun segment. 
kind of a surprise segment for you, Ken, and then we'll continue on. How's that? Okay. Yeah. Need a break from this snooty and pretentious movie analysis. Necessary for for our minds and brains right now to kind of go on to something. And it's not really related to Apocalypse now, but I thought I'd throw it in because I want to ask you, what kind of guy or gal are you? And basically, I'm going to throw two movies your way. Not necessarily the same genre. Most are. And you're just going to tell me which kind of guy you are. And then if you want, give me a slight or a little explanation to that. So right. are you, Ken, a casino guy or a Goodfellas guy? Goodfellas. Are you a Rain Man guy or a Forrest Gump guy? This, this is like the uh, the eye exam. Is it, what is it, number one or number two? Can I see them again, please? I recently watched Forrest Gump, and I had introduced it to my kids, so I have a soft spot in my heart. However, and Tom Hanks is amazing. However, Dustin Hoffman is amazinger. See how I see how I made that not snooty? Yeah, amazing dash er. Okay, and are you a Godfather guy or a Godfather Two guy? Ooh, two. I think two is a better movie. However, one wins for being the groundbreaker, and some of the cinematography and the the the, the blocking is in one is pretty amazing as well. But one of those rare episodes, I say episode because it actually, in some ways, kind of becomes a crowning achievement over its predecessor. In some ways, how do you even do that? I mean, exactly. <laughs> How do you take a movie like The Godfather and improve upon it? Amazing. <laughs> no, he didn't want a movie that insists upon itself. Okay, so are you a, my next one, are you a Breakfast Club guy or a St. Elmo's Fire guy? I recently saw The Breakfast Club. You know, however, I, I remember it was like I, I showed this to the kids. Oh, this is like totally 1980s. And we all watched it, and it didn't have the same effect. Neither of these movies had the same effect on me. I think there was a time and place. That time has passed. I'm going to say neutral. Okay. And is that perhaps because it's as time goes by, they become dated? I don't think they've they've stood the, they've stood up well to time. Got it. It was it was it was a interesting uh, view or microcosm at the time, but it's kind of like Ferris Bueller. This 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 just isn't sure applicable. Next, are you a, this may be easy for you. I didn't exactly customize this because I wanted to get your on the spot answers, reactions without preparation, Ken. So are you a Martin Scorsese guy or a Steven Spielberg guy? Scorsese. Are you a naked gun guy or a police academy guy? Uh, it's the same movie. <laughs> it's like, I feel like that meme, they're the same picture. <laughs> All those Zucker brothers have that signature. Um, yeah, I, I, I like them both. Are you a Meet the Parents guy or Tropic Thunder guy? I hadn't seen Tropic Thunder. Fair enough. Are you a Braveheart guy or a Gladiator guy? Gladiator. Now, can I take a guess why? Is it Ridley Scott cinematography? Ridley Scott cinematography. I've always been mesmerized by his cinematography. And those yeah, washed out that. 
and those washed out monochromatic tones, uh, just coupled with the way he shoots the action scenes. The testosterone is there without being uh, repulsive. Braveheart is, is a glimpse into Mel Gibson's psyche. And my gosh, it's pretty, it's disturbing, the ending. You don't right. get that feeling in Gladiator. Right. And one more for you. This may be an easy one. Are you a tombstone guy or a white herb guy? Ooh. I love tombstone. Quotable. Bill Paxton. By the way, I when you said uh, Jason Patrick and I said tombstone, I was thinking of Bill Paxton. They do have that similarity. Uh, I still can't believe he's not around with us. Rest in peace. Kurt, but Kurt Russell... Love him as the bad guy, as the as the badass protagonist in the old west, mind you. <laughs> it's it just kind of it elevates another notch, another notch with that walrus mustache. Oh, and then the same actor in Big Lebowski. What was that guy's name? That would be the one and only Sam Elliott. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it was awesome. Okay, let me let me. Uh... Let me uh, entertain you for a bit. You got that sarsaparilla. <laughs> <laughs> That's dude. <laughs> We've gotten that right away. Can you do Jesus? Oh, I could if I prepare a little bit. Is John Turturro? Nobody beats the Jesus. You know, they made a, a movie, like a, a spinoff of that. Oh, really? With John Turturro? Yeah. This, basically, he is the lead role, his character. It's just got horrific reviews, so don't bother. Too bad. Yeah, he works so well as a supporting actor. Ultimate, no country. Chame ultimate chameleon. Ultimate. We oh. thought they turned you into a toad. No, they never did turn me into a toad. It's great. Your kid, your kid sold us out. You take that back. Pete, I sold you out. They got this depression on. Ooh, Ken in the southern twang. You go. Hey, I lived in the south for two years. So, I, I tell you what. Tell you what. <clears throat> what Americans do, that impersonation, they just go real drawl heavy. They do a cowboy. Mm-hmm. Or Billy Bob Thornton. Reckon he make me some biscuits. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Fruit card flicks. Okay, well, let's jump back, back into it. But before we get into more of the meat and potatoes, I have a question. Actually, more of a comment. And this is just outside with, about the production itself, you know. I thought that when I, well, I found this out later, I thought Martin Sheen was doing the voiceover throughout the entire movie. Yes. And, and then I saw it was credited to whom? His brother, who sounds identical. Uh, and Wow. When I was listening to that him. It blew me away. And it's not just like, you know, the, the, the fact that they, you know, oh, it just so happens he sounds identical to Martin Sheen, but the delivery was pretty good. And as far as I know, he's a non-actor. So it really, talk about, you know, scoring big time luck-wise, you know, and getting such a great performance because that, that narration is pivotal to the success of the movie. Yes, yes, I totally agree. Narration often is criticized, but in a movie like this or Goodfellas, it's completely necessary. 
And he had to do that in post. So I think Martin Sheen uh, was already recovered after the heart attack and, and had other yes, he, commitments. He, well, during, during the filming, he had to take several weeks off and then he came back like, you know, half day schedules and eventually came back. What was the thing with the bandage over his cheek in the cut? And he makes, and they, they focus on this at the dinner table with the French. He's looking at this cut on his face, the scar in a butter knife. What was that all about? You mean the significance of it or just the cut itself? Or were they just hiding this, the fact that he had cut it? Was that, did that happen during the mirror smashing scene? It was the mirror smashing scene. Yes. And I, and I, I can't say that with absolute certainty, but I remember reading about that a couple of years back. So okay. most likely that. But why did they call attention to it? Where he looks at himself in the butter knife. Good question. That's one for our listeners to chime in and leave us some feedback and please do so. Okay. And correct us without sounding snooty and pretentious, please. Oh, how tone of voice, especially in all caps. I wonder if listeners get my, my sarcasm. Oh, I'm sure they that do. The fact that I'm being sarcastic about 90% of the time, although I don't, I never change my tone or my delivery. It throws people sometimes. It's, it's important to be consistent with your vocal delivery, especially when you're discussing such grand detail, my man. Okay. Well, thanks for answering that and commenting on that. But I wanted to also bring up the mo one of the most famous lines in the movie, who, which was uttered by a producer of the film. And I want to ask you about the line itself, what it means exactly. I mean, on the surface, I know what okay. it means, but I, I really want to know the deep meaning and the, um, the essence of it. And that's the line, terminate with extreme prejudice. It's, it's just a phrase that, it's just a euphemism for kill somebody in military speak. But why is it somewhat made to be like almost a euphemism? Like, you know, you don't just fire him from his position. You make sure he never comes back again. That's the extreme prejudice. You don't you don't think about the morality. You just do it. Okay. Damn it. So like when you're sending a hitman out, you know, they can't have any sympathy and you know, one track mind only, and that's kill mission. Yes. Okay. So they were interviewing him to see if he was the guy. He has the salt. Because there was a previous guy, Holby, who <clears throat> succumbed to the heart of darkness and he becomes part of the cult or the tribe or whatever that is. He gets assimilated in and he has a little family and he writes a note, you know, a scrawled note back to his, his, his wife that gets intercepted by Comsec and it says, sell the house, sell the kids, sell it all. I'm never coming home. Scratched out home. I'm never coming back. So this is like his new home. Extreme Prejudice. Good movie with Nick Nolte, by the way. 1985. Oh, yeah. Sheen says... He was being groomed for one of the top slots in the corporation. Oh, but he refers to this politics, the government or the military branch as the corporation, which really implies the trading companies, the ivory trading companies in Africa. Okay. European. So that's another tie back to the novella. Really brilliant. I hadn't picked up on this the first time through. Niels did an amazing job. And you know, I always get a little disturbed when I hear the word groomed <laughs> in that context. Like, you know, 
whether you're watching a documentary on YouTube and you hear that word and it just grooming him for the for the for CEO position, yeah. which means you've got somebody in in power that you can control as a puppet, right? And he wasn't going to be that. He was going to be his own guy, and that in effect was his downfall. Very, very well said. And I wanted to mention how the performance of Robert Duvall grabbed him or nabbed him an Oscar nomination. Do you know how how many minutes he was on screen in total? Less than five. No, more than that. Less than 10. 11 minutes. <laughs> Got the Oscar nomination. However, I thought this was a record breaker. BHS Straight and Network had five minutes and 40 seconds of screen time and won the Academy Award for Best Actress. Supporting? Best Supporting Actress. Yeah, yeah. Now, Duvall didn't win, but it's just a testament to how the, the impact of every second he was on screen, how that mattered to the Academy. Oh, my, and like I said, a totally memorable character in cinema history. There are a few moments like that, and this is one of them. And, and to me, not very like Duvall to play very masculine, testosterone-charged. Well, coming off of The Godfather, where he's conciliary. Very passive, very man meek. behind the scenes, passive. He welled power, but it was all behind the scenes. And I believe his debut was just 10 years or 12 years before that in um, To Kill a Mockingbird as Boo Bradley. And had no lines, I believe. Yeah, that, that scene was not at all tied back to the novel in terms of Kilgore's character. That was something that they added. And it just probably allowed Robert Duvall to develop that. Well, which scene are you talking about? Anything, the scenes with Kilgore. Oh, really? All the yes. scenes? There's no, there's no character like that. There is Dennis Hopper's character in the novel, and, and he, he's a Russian guy in the novel. But a lot of the same things are said. He, he jumps on board. He asks for tobacco. Mm. Um, uh, he, he quotes, he's clear in his mind, but his soul is mad. You don't speak to him, you listen. He alludes to Kurtz's poetry, which he might have written. No, he, he's reading poetry, and then in the novel, Kurtz actually wrote poetry. Oh. So that Dennis Hopper's character is is cop pulled right out of the novel, but um, not Robert Duvall's. Now that scene where the wounded villager has his guts is literally holding his guts. That's great because it shows how he's being compassionate, but yet when he finds out there's a famous surfer amongst his men, he completely forgets about him. Right. Completely. That scene is based on fact. Which fact? The fact that there was a wounded villager literally holding their guts in with a lid of a, of a pot. Now, I don't know about the interaction with, with a, a colonel or another military officer, but that in itself was um, based on fact. Interesting. From, what's, from a story about from one of the soldiers? Right. Right. That'd be interesting to uh, find that little factoid. Okay. I wanted to talk a little bit about the door soundtrack and you probably have some interesting things to say about that because uh, my understanding is that Coppola met Jim Morrison and actually asked him in advance to use his song for a war film. And this was of course, before he passed away um, having sort of in his mind that he would utilize that song. So, yeah, that particular song. Right. The end. The end. 
which ironically starts the movie. That's cool. Haven't you haven't you ever listened to a song and said, "Man, this would be a a scene based on this would be so awesome." <laughs> you you mold a scene and a movie around the song. Yeah, that, I'm not saying that's what happened, but sometimes don't you get that feeling sometimes when you're listening to a certain song? Yes, and I think the you know we mentioned about tropes how sometimes whether it happens so often that it becomes a trope or whether it's just done so often within a short period of time but we're talking with war movies over decades of time they use those songs to like in the helicopter uh in born the fourth of july in forrest gump they use those songs by uh credence clearwater revival that tell you when you're listening to them without the movie that it reminds you of a scene from a war movie paint it black and uh i think it's quite quite fitting when you listen to a soundtrack let's say you have the actual soundtrack for uh this you know this movie or full metal jacket or the godfather when you're listening to that are you thinking of the movie let's say that there's a song that's both in for example goodfellas and the godfather you know which one does it pull you into or does it pull you into both I, I think of a, there, there's not there's no union of the 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 tracks from those movies. Are you saying, for example? Yeah, one or the other. Um, Never a union. Do I sometimes I think about the movie? Yeah, I think the movie evokes the soundtrack and not vice versa. At least for me. So when you hear Rags to Riches, don't you always think of Goodfellas? Good point. Because I had never heard that song outside of the context of the movie Goodfellas. However, some of the other tracks in there, the Rolling Stones stuff, predates my exposure to Goodfellas. Ah. So in those cases, I don't. But in the cases of a song like Rags to Riches, for sure, I'm thinking Henry Hill. I'm thinking of Tommy and Henry in their you know, cheesy suits knocking over a, a truck driver at a diner. You know, that scene just whew, right into my mind. So, yeah, good point. Only because I have it sort of deeply etched, and and you make the point of well, if it predates or if my exposure to it, you know, was before that, I had limited exposure to that soundtrack or to the songs in that movie before 1990. I'm talking about Goodfellas, but after and since then, I think of nothing other than not just the movie, but of that specific scene. That whole movie speaks to me with you know all the food and the culture references. I feel like that is a part of my history, not the crime part, but some of the other Italian-American stereotypes and tropes seem to ring true for me, at least. And speaking of tropes, Ken, wouldn't you say that, in a way, that Coppola created his own trope, starting with The Godfather? Which one? Sure. I mean, I... I Leone made fun of that fact of his own trope, but I mean, you you can't really you can't really help that. It it, it is a scene either works or it doesn't, and it works in a big way. It becomes tropey. Everyone copies it, right? And it has to ring true, and therefore it has to be somewhat tropey, whether it's cheesily done or if it's done with finesse. It it ha it, it it occurs because it happens. It's a cliche because it happens. So the cliche and the trope is not bad in itself. It's the treatment of it sure. that matters. You're on fire! <laughs> I think we're getting a little snooty and pretentious. 
Oh, well, you know, I, music is so essential and I loved discussing with you about Ennio Morricone and the significance and beauty of his score and how it was just so perfect. When I think of songs that are specifically chosen, and we talked about Quentin Tarantino and the songs, how he he's somewhat taken, he, he's known for that. He he takes these these actors who have not worked in a while, or maybe this little song that hasn't had enough exposure, and he puts it out there, and it just becomes permanent in popular culture. But since we're talking, discussing specifically a war movie, and, and not just any war movie, those scenes and the doors, I there's a lot of movies I've seen with Doors songs, but I always think when I hear the end, I think of Apocalypse Now. He plays the end at the beginning. He book he bookends the movie with that song. Right. So in the novel, the the, the people who I don't know if they enslaved them or they just paid them pitiful wages, but there's tribes of people on the Congo, and they end up being workers on the boats or at the stations where they collect the ivory. And one of his, one of his guys is, helps him navigate. And he, he's in a tribe of cannibals, actually. So all the white guys on the boat are afraid of them uh, running out of meat, because what, what may happen in their sleep? They actually bring some spoiled hippo meat onto the boat, onto the steamship. And one of the the managers throws it overboard because it just stinks so horribly. And when you see a fish jump, you know, the cannibals are just kind of like getting so excited. Mm -hmm. And he makes a comment, catch them, catch them, give us, you know, in, in whatever English he can speak. He's got one guy who helps him navigate and he directly parallels to the boat captain. Um, what was his name on the riverboat in the movie? But the, it, there's exactly the scene where they get close to Kurtz and all these arrows, the natives start shooting all these arrows at them. And the, uh, the managers on board uh, start shooting off their, their muskets or whatever they have. And his navigator gets so, so excited and he, he stomps up and down and he opens the door and he starts shouting and, at them. And a spear comes in and skewers him. So right from the movie. And he falls over and there's blood, so much blood, such that uh, Marlowe, who's the protagonist in the book, ha wants to, he takes off his shoes and just throws them away like a new pair of shoes. And he feels so guilty. And before he, f he kind of refers to him as a foolish man. And then after he's dead, he feels sorry for him. So he feels guilt about what, how he treated this man. But he throws him over to the dismay of the other cannibals on board because they're thinking, this could be a meal. So the animal sacrifice is just a tieback to all of that uh, kind of tribal culture. Hmm. And I see how it's, it's, it's an allegory for what happens to Kurtz. However, I think that's pretty broad. That's, that's, that's pretty obvious. I think it more, I always think of it more tieback to the novel, this tribe, the Montagnard army who lives, the Montagnard people who live uh, in isolation and, and their own little tribal culture really cut off from the world in Cambodia. So that's my take on it. Interesting. Yeah, it, it is uh, on the surface. It's pretty overt, you know, with Colonel Kurtz. In, in fact, in fact, in the beginning, when they when he has lunch with the general, there's a long hold on the meat. So I just thought of that. That that ties back to the oh. whole thing. 
there's a huge thing of roast beef for just the four people. And then the shrimp, and if you, if you eat it, you'll never have to prove your courage again. It was a problem that he showed up very overweight, and how are you gonna, how are you gonna portray a soldier who's that out of shape? How is that even possible? And so I think the solution really worked, though, because you just kept him in the shadows. He never really showed his full profile, except for maybe one instance. Uh, you got to ask yourself, in the storyboard work, was the, were those shadows there when Coppola had that script and we have this lean and fit? I think it was a solution to the problem at hand, which ended up working really well. In fact, if you look at when Martin Sheen comes out of the cave after having murdered Kurtz, he's filmed all in shadow as well. So the, the, the analogy becomes, oh, he's accepted the heart of darkness. That's a great point. The shadows are already there. Now, is that to signify that the character's demeanor and murderous instinct is similar or are similar? It's always there under the surface. If you watch him throughout, he's kind of separate from the group. And the guys that are moral get destroyed. The boat captain, clean, Lawrence Fitz, Fitz, Fishburne's character, mm -hmm. chef, are all destroyed by going back in time into the savagery. And only Lance and Captain Willard survive. And so you see this. When they, when they approach the, the boat, the junk boat, and harass the civilians that are carrying rice and vegetables and ducks, and chef is forced to... Uh, to board the boat, and then a mistake causes them to get completely merged and slaughtered. Mm. Sheen comes up. And says, She's still moving. We got to take her to some 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 friendlies in the hospital. It's it's the rules. He pulls out his gun, bang, and he murders her. And it's not to show him as the badass cowboy kind of character. It's to show his callousness already there. For my sins, I was given a mission. Okay, so it's already in him. And Lance, you see him developing this, this callousness throughout the trip. He's, he, he comes up as a, he starts out as a fair-haired surfer boy. But then you see him doing more and more horrible things. Right, right, right. You know, with the Playboy show, he's, you bitch! You know, he's screaming that. Um, he, he takes the dog from them. And after, after uh, Clean gets killed in the battle, what does he do? Where'd the dog go? We gotta go back and find the dog! Okay, so... He's got it in him too. And when he's sitting at the dinner table with the French and he, he's just he's just scarfing down, he reaches over and he knocks over someone, hey, take it easy. I said, oh, okay, okay. You know, he you see you see that in him where the other guys uh, the war and the heart of darkness drives them crazy, drives them to insanity and eventually devours them. And the only guys who survive are the two who can separate in their mind uh, the good from the evil and when each are necessary and what's his name lance even he, he gets into the cult he's wearing a loincloth he's jumping around he's playing with the kids like he's he's drinking the kool-aid and at the end martin Sheen grabs him and says <laughs> he pulls him out let's go but he doesn't do the same to colby because colby's too far gone so in essence this that essentially means that it all ended up working for the sake of the character development for not just Kurtz, but for the others as well. Yeah, we don't, you know, we're not introduced to Kurtz very much, just at the end and very little. And I wonder if that was because that, you know, aside from 
Aside from the fact that it was too expensive to have Marlon Brando on set. Well, getting around the weight gain with shadows and with camera special camera angles, I just thought that, well, Coppola's imp improvisation of making him like this sort of this god of the village, eating mangoes and pineapples, that worked out. But we're talking 80 pounds he gained, Ken. And so they had to use deep shadows and serious deep, darkness deep shadows. There. Yeah. And, but it works to a degree. There are some scenes where I thought it's too much. I look at you, just see a profile shot and just, you know, but it ended up working completely. A little bit. But some of these images are iconic, though. Wouldn't you say? The cinematography. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And it, it's, you know, I don't use the word happy accident often, but uh, less of an accident and more of just a auspicious result. Sure. What about Dennis Hopper's character? and his conflicts with Brando. Was he on drugs? Was he the same guy in Easy Rider, or what was he doing? You know, I don't know. I don't want to speculate, but I just, um, Hopper's a bit notorious for that. Um, so, but then again, Brando's more notorious for his sort of uh, onset antics. And I, you know, here's what I say about that, Ken. And I'll say this, because Brando was in The Godfather you would think there would be a degree of respect for the person that directed you five years before and created, well, helped to create one of the most iconic performances of all time. It was a little bit of hubris on, on Brando's part. So to ask for that amount of money, he should have just, I don't know, take a pay cut. I mean, a lot of actors do that these days to work with great directors. Would it really have been a huge deal for him to do that. And I can't help but think that, but I try to keep that out of my mind when I'm watching the film so it doesn't affect e me. Yes. Yes. Yeah. For the most part. I just have I just have one more point. Mm -hmm. it, it it actually ties back to later in the movie where you know what is the what is the the call sign when he's gonna call in the airstrike. It's almighty. And Almighty standing by. So Almighty, the Almighty, quote unquote, calls out to uh, Martin Sheen's character. And what does he do? He turns the radio off. So he, so he's already been, you know, perverted by the heart of darkness. And right before that, you see a scene where they hold on some of uh, Kurtz's books. There's two books of poetry, and there's the Holy Bible. Wow. Not not too heavy-handed with the symbolism, too. No, no, not at all. In fact, the horror comment uh, comes right out of the novel. I wanted to read a little bit from that for, for context. Sure, please do. So, anything approaching the change that came over his features I have never seen before and hope never to see again. Oh, I wasn't touched. I was fascinated. This was as tough a veil had been rent. I saw on that ivory face the expression of somber pride, of ruthless power of craven terror of an intense and hopeless desire did he live his life again in every detail of desire temptation and surrender during the supreme moment of complete knowledge he cried in a whisper at some image at some vision he cried out twice a cry that was no more than a breath the horror the horror and truly just pensive introspective dialogue and that's why, I, and this was part of the narration. Now, was, was that what you just read and narrated in the movie? 
Not to my recollection. No, he just says the line, the last line is okay. the horror. Yeah, that last line. Ken, did you know, maybe you already knew this, but there are 230 hours of footage. I mean, to imagine how they were able to squeeze it down. <laughs> that's that's the Redux version. That's How old is it? 345, maybe? The Redux version? Yeah. Some are around there, but there's originally 230 hours of footage. So Wow. How long did it take him to edit? Don't know. A long time. It was like a seven, 17 weeks shooting schedule that bloomed into about 17 or 18 months. Yeah. And here we think that perhaps that directors who are very successful after a big hit, like The Godfather, and they got subsequent hits, consecutive hits, that, oh, let's give him carte blanche and he can have as much money as he wants. Doesn't exactly work that way, especially since Vietnam, the Vietnam War was too recent a memory. Nobody wanted to finance it. So he ponied up his own $8 million. And by the way, Brando he, knew that he was ponying up his own money and still demanded yeah. $4 million or $5 million, whatever it was. So, and, and you know, Troubled says, he's so used to it. He was so irritated by Robert Evans from The Godfather. And for Godfather 2, he had carte blanche. He said, no Robert Evans, no this. But for this war movie, studios just didn't want to finance it. Well, Ken, this was a very, very deep discussion, and I hope it wasn't too deep for our deep listeners dive. who perhaps wanted something a little more leisurely or a little more uh, uh, light. But, you know, I think there's many asides that can still revolve around this movie, the production itself, the film itself, the, the, the acting, and some of the iconic segments and imagery that to this day people still value and are uh, pondering on to younger generations about how just uh, significant it is to viewers and to people who, who even maybe are not big film fans. Yes, for sure. And also a top 10 movie of all time deserves such a treatment. Yeah, I, now I'm going to check out the AFI to see how that works. If it's every year or every two years or five years to see what, uh, what how their system is and, what gets pumped up and what gets bumped down. I'm also curious of the criteria itself. You know, is it like sort of this general consensus or, you know, something I, I like to look into. So I wonder what movie we're going to review next. Hopefully we'll have some comments that will um, lead us down that path. Would love it. We could use the help folks. Uh, we would like some feedback because, you know, I make mistakes and uh, sometimes I forget to cut the mistakes that I make, but then I'll own up to it. And it's important that we know those things, you know, because listeners out there are like screaming while we get things wrong. And they're just like, really? How did you not know this detail or that Ice-T was in that movie? <laughs> that was so random. <laughs> How many brain farts have we, have we suffered? Okay, so I got one last segment and we're going to alternate between Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel for the Balcony Archives with Siskel and Ebert. And I wanted to play an audio clip from Gene Siskel's mini review of 1967. No. And we're going to continue that 68. onward when we're, when there's a movie that we have for discussion for an episode, I'm going to take a review. Oh, you're going to play the one from that movie that we discuss, whether it be in okay. audio form or in text form. 
from the review. Cool. So for this one, it's Gene Siskel. So let's have a listen. This is an action picture that's simply a lot of fun most of the way, even though it doesn't add up to much. Not a ringing endorsement, but I like it. Now, this is a very big film that tries to say a lot of conventional things about the war, about the arrogance of our war effort. That part of the film is very colorful, impressive, sometimes even memorable. But Apocalypse Now is also after a much bigger target. Nothing less, I think, than a speculation on the nature and source of good and evil in the world, how the war came about. On that score, I think it fails completely. The Brando character, who we wait for two hours to meet, has nothing to say. And we walk out of Apocalypse Now wondering, what's the big deal? Dismissive much? You know, I, I mentioned that in the novel, you don't hear much from Kurtz either. It's all about what people say about him, their impression of him. We don't get to judge his character. We only get to see how he has affected other people. So in that sense, it's true to the novel. He may feel it doesn't work in the, in the script, but I respect that decision. Okay. By, by Coppola. And, and this is one of the more heated debates that they had. Watch the uh, folks if you if you're not a follower yet on Instagram, the full clips there and Roger Ebert lets him have it. And, you know, very, uh, a very wide view or difference of view on this movie. And, but overall, do you think it's a fair viewpoint to have? Yes, you could say that. However, I don't think it detracts. There's enough powerhouse performances. I I tend to watch movies for directors, not necessarily for actors. Sometimes I'll, my favorite actor appears. Danny Day-Lewis appeared in anything. A Cheerios commercial. I would watch that damn thing, okay? But generally, I tend to follow who directed. I don't care who acts in it. He likes it. He likes life cereal. <laughs> yeah. Can I taste your Cheerios? <laughs> if I had your Cheerios, <laughs> I'd eat them up. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's a very good point. I mean, I, I looked at e sometimes Siskel, Gene Siskel would have such a passionate view about something that he would resort to being a bit of a bully. And he would just basically, it's an insult to his intelligence that someone would be on the complete opposite side when it comes to their viewpoint of how they felt about it. Well, this was the great thing about Siskel and Ebert. There you go. They were not always in alignment. And, nope. And you know what? We were entertained, Ken, because my, my dad would watch it every Sunday. and Mine would, too. Really? Yeah. And I remember this. I would try to catch most of it with him. He used to call him Siskel and Dippy for some reason. I don't know why. But uh, And then I would always hear them arguing, and that was the entertainment. That was our reality show at the time, was to see unscripted arguments happen and they didn't cut it. it it was a respectful discussion though it wasn't like today's arguments that are riddled with that are riddled with personal attacks sure and uh thanks for taking the time my man and i thought i'd say to our listeners out there that do yourself a favor if you're unsure of what to rent or watch this weekend most likely you can't do wrong by renting a Francis Ford Coppola film, except Jack. I'll say no more. Did you see Jack? Did not. Don't see Jack. <laughs> okay. You don't know Jack, just don't see Jack. Okay. Yeah, definitely can't go wrong with this cut of the film. I, right. think it's the, I think it's the best. I think it is the final. It's the right one. It's perfect. Okay. And here we are wrapping another one up. Appreciate the time. 
Well, a fun one and a deep dive, Ken. Thanks a bunch. As always, great to be here. Looking forward to the next one. And to those who perhaps are unsure of what Ken's wearing right now, I believe it's pajamas. Then again, it could be something else. Wearing clothes? What? bizarre image there and a scary mm -hmm. one too if you think what total disregard that shows for the country that they're in mm -hmm. the juxtaposition of details there was typical of the whole movie the patrol boat the army mission secret instructions and then mick jagger singing i can't get no satisfaction and the kid water skiing through enemy territory what coppola was trying to do in apocalypse now is portray the insanity of the war by showing american culture and all of its artifacts reduced to total impotence by the alien jungle and Gene, now this is my number one film for 1979. I find it listed nowhere whatsoever on your list. You're a good reader. Why is that? <laughs> well, I like the picture of the first maybe two-thirds <clears throat> of it a lot for the very reasons that you picked on in that mm -hmm. sequence. If we can water ski and splash people as casually as that kid was doing, then why not drop bombs on him, too? I mean, it's just a logical extension. Coppola makes the point well. In the movie, we journey upriver to Marlon Brando. Something special is going to happen because it's two hours to get there. I found the last 20 minutes of the picture just lost it. Uh, I got to Brando, I, got, I found out nothing new, I didn't like the character, I didn't care about what was going on there, it was, seemed confused to me, I was let down. The film split off into two parts for me. Well, I could defend Apocalypse Now on the basis of its first 90 minutes, I would put it on my best 10 list, but apart from that, I've defended the whole film on this program twice before. I'll defend what Brando says on what he does. I've seen the film twice, I've listened to the soundtrack mm -hmm. a couple of times. Brando's speech at the end of this film does a very good job of explaining exactly why we were in Vietnam and why we didn't win that war. I think it's a very good speech. I would defend it, and I'll stand behind my choice. I think the first part of the film explains it well enough, and I think the last part adds virtually nothing except okay. confusion. All right? We haven't convinced each other. Have we, we have not, no. Okay.